Shalom, and welcome to this third lesson in the vidcast series that I've entitled Against the Gods. This is Reverend John Ferret. Many of you who have seen either video one or video two or listened to the podcast or have taken many of my classes over these years, you would agree that putting the Bible in its historical context does not take away at all in terms of our beliefs, but definitely it adds to, enhances, and enriches our understanding of the Bible. So we're asking, who was the first audience? What did they hear when they heard these words the first time? How did they relate to the very words of God inspired by Moses in their day? On top of that, what was God's original intent? He's talking to the initial audience, the Hebrews coming out of Egypt. What was he trying to teach them then, 3,400 years ago, that is completely foreign to our own culture today? One Bible scholar at a website called apologetics.substack.com but this scholar talks about Genesis as the polemic. And we've heard that word already in video one and video two. This scholar goes on and he says, the fundamental or summarized goal of exegesis, exegesis is basically trying to determine the interpretation of God's word, finding the meaning. So the fundamental or summarized goal of exegesis and study, uh, the study of scripture, is to find the author's intent. To remove the authorial intent gives way to endless meanings of scripture, which allows for any given rendering at any given moment. To find God's meaning, we must uncover what the biblical author intended. Genesis was not written to us, but it does have a purpose for every believer who's in Christ. Like other parts of scripture, Genesis 1 must be interpreted in terms of its historical and literary context. Now, I agree with that, but I also say that putting the Bible in its historical context is not the only way we're studying Scripture. It is a major way. I believe it is a fundamental way we need to do that, but we do see how putting it in a historical context enriches our understanding of the Bible. This creation account was given to the Israelites in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, but before the conquest of Canaan. What the message meant then to the original hearers must govern the application of what it means now to us today. And so therefore, again, like I said, it enhances and enriches our understanding now. The historic artistic interpretation of Genesis 1 does justice to its literary structure and the general biblical perspective on natural events. Now with that as an in intro, Let's consider the creation of man and woman. And this is going to be found specifically in a couple of verses. Quoting from the New American Standard in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. 
The other verse that's associated with, who, uh, with this is the other account of creation of man and woman found in Genesis 2. So I'm looking at uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, is there more to this? Is it possible that 3,400 years ago that God is inspiring a polemic? A polemic, again, is that attack against pagan gods, pagan mythologies, pagan religions. Is it a direct attack against that? The answer is yes. So let's go see. As you know, what I normally like to do is before we enter into Bible study, I always like to say a blessing before we get into God's word. And indeed, they did this in Jesus's day in the synagogue. They'd always say a blessing to God before they began their study during the week in the synagogues of Jesus's day. So I'm going to say it slow in Hebrew. And so that perhaps you can repeat after me. Baruch hata Adonai. Eloheinu melech haholam. Ashir bachar benu mikol hahamim. Veinatan lanu etorato. Veinevuim hatovim. Veinatan lanu etabasora mashiach Yeshua. Veinatan lanu etabrit chadasha. Baruch ata Adonai, noten hadevrei emet. And in English, blessed are you, the Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from all people and given us his Torah and the good prophets and given us the good news of Messiah Jesus and given us the new covenant. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the words of truth. So we're going to go in, obviously, to the book of Genesis. We're going to be taking a look at these specific two verses. As I mentioned in video number one and video number two, there's an excellent book written by Dr. John Kareed, who is a renowned Egyptologist. He is a renowned archaeologist, and he is a renowned theologian. And he wrote the book Against the Gods. And as you see on the cover, it is the polemical theology of the Old Testament. And Dr. Curie talks about the polemics in Genesis. He stated polemical theology is the use of biblical uh, is the use by biblical writers, Moses, for instance, of the thought forms and the stories that were common in ancient Near Eastern culture, such as in Egypt and such as in Canaan, while filling them in with radically new meaning. In other words, an attack against those religions, against those gods, to show that they are false. Poly, it's, it's, it's attack against polytheism. The biblical authors take well-known expressions and motifs from the ancient Near Eastern milieu and apply them to the person and work of Yahweh and not to the other gods of the ancient world. So a good way, a good picture of, again, a polemic 
or you might say polemical, polemic uh, theology in the Old Testament is an attack, an attack by God himself self, against those pagan religions. Merriam-Webster describes a polemic as an aggressive attack on or a refutation of the opinions or the principles of another. In the Cambridge Dictionary, a polemic is a piece of writing or a speech which a person strongly, where, where a person strongly attacks or defends a particular opinion, a particular person, idea, or a set of beliefs. Let me take you to a place called Elephantine Island, and you can see it on the map there in that red circle, right near the first cataract in Aswan, Egypt. You're looking at Elephantine Island, and you're looking at, obviously, the remains of some Egyptian temples there on the left-hand side. This temple is the temple to the Egyptian god Kunum. Kunum was one of the main gods in the Egyptian pantheon, not only in the, you'd say, old kingdom prior to Abraham's day, but even into the new kingdom. Matter of fact, this temple supposedly was there during the 18th dynasty, which is the time of the Exodus. This is a picture taken from not this temple, but from another table, temple. And you can see the god Kunum there on the left-hand side, seated. And he is seated like before a table. And you see a small person standing on top of that table. Well, what that is supposed to be is a potter's wheel. And the god Kunum supposedly created man. And there is that picture of us, humankind, that Kunum formed like a potter forms clay into a pot. Here is a coin of Kunum, and there you can see the potter's tools in the back. You can see some vases and bowls and so on that the potter actually created. And the god Kunum, who has a ram's head, who has created humankind. So like I said, Kunum was also a god of the new kingdom. So therefore, uh, another main god of Egypt. He was the creator god of all. And supposedly he created everything on his potter's wheel, not just man. All the other gods were created on his potter wheel. Alligators were created on his potter wheel. Uh, elephants were created on his potter wheel. Uh, wheat, grass, oranges were created on, he created everything on his potter wheel. There was no distinction, man, woman, gods, animals, plants, sky, the universe. We want to put the Bible in its context, and then we ask those Hebrews, whether they're at Sinai or whether at the plains of Moab, Moses died, the Torah is done. He wrote those first five books. He's there, they're the first audience to hear T-V-W-O-G, the very words of God. What did they hear then? What did they understand then? So once we understand how they looked upon these words, perhaps we can more fully comprehend the Bible today in our day and understand it in a deeper and more enriched way.
Here's Genesis 2, 4 through 7. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Now here's the phrase. Then the Lord God formed man of dust. In other words, he formed man from the mud, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now that word, the English word formed, translates the Hebrew word yatsar. Yatsar, there is the Strong's number, H3335. And you're looking at a picture from the Gesenius Hebrew lexicon with regards to the word yatser. And the interesting thing here is it means to form or to fashion as a potter, to form or to fashion from clay, from dust, from mud. And so the Hebrew word is directly related to a potter. Veomer Adonai Elohim. And the Lord God said, and we remember many of the things that he said. That's what it means in English. And then God said, this is stated in Genesis 1.3, Genesis 1.6, Genesis 1.9, 11, 14, 20, and 24. Then God said, so when we get down to 24, God said, let us create man in our image. And then in Genesis 2.7, we get further description of that creation. Only man and woman are formed by God by his hand like a potter. Now, this is the point. Everything that God created was by his word. And you can go back to Genesis, verse, Genesis 1, verse 3, or verse 6, or 9. Everything is created by his word. Only man and woman are formed by God, yatser, by his own hand like a potter. And we remember in Isaiah 64, 8, that he is the potter and we are the clay. So for the Hebrews, again, at Sinai or at the plains of Moab, what did they hear and what did they see? So God is coming against Kanum. Kanum created everything on his potter wheel. But not God, not the true God. He creates everything by his word. And the only thing he creates on his potter wheel is us, men and women. Amazing. Let me take you to another place, not far from Elephantine Island near Aswan. This is, this is the great temple of Ramses, which is located near the great dam on the Nile River. And I want to focus in on one specific piece of the front of this great temple. And you're looking at a god, another god, the great god of the 18th dynasty. This is Amun-Ra. And he is the great sun god that ruled over all the earth. And there is the eye of Ra. 
And in the ancient Egyptian, it'd be called Wejat, the eye of wholeness, the eye of Ra. And here is a picture of a sarcophagus of an ancient Egyptian. And you can see the eye of Ra, actually the eyes of Ra, there on the sarcophagus of this ancient Egyptian who was buried and then they found his casket, his sarcophagus. His eye supposedly separated from Ra and his eye failed to return. This was during the creation of the heavens and the earth. He had twin sons, Shul and Tefnut. These were the sons of Ra, and they went to fetch their father's eye, but the eye resisted. And in the ensuing struggle, in the ensuing battle, the eye started crying, from which humans were born. We were created by Amun-Ra from the tears of his eye by mistake. All humans. Amun-Ra did not have it as something that he decided to do on purpose. To make men and women a specific part of the creation, it happened to be a mistake. So Ra is the powerful God of the new kingdom. The new kingdom is the time of the Exodus. He's the main God of Egypt in Moses' day. He's the creator of all things. He created man and woman, but not on purpose. It's not part of Ra's creation plan. We're nothing but tears of the eye of Ra. We happen to be an accident. Now, you happen to be looking at a picture, a very old picture, of the entrance to King Tut's tomb. Now, King Tut is not his real name. King Tut's real name is Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun. That's what it is in Egyptian. It means the living image of the god Amun. And this is from the JPS Torah commentary. Now, all kings, Pharaoh, and all kings of the ancient Near East, all the pagan kings, and only the kings, were made in the image of the gods. In Mesopotamia, the father, uh, there's a statement that talks about the father of the Lord my king is made in the image of the god Bel, or Baal. And we take a look at a picture of perhaps a rendering or a statue of the god Baal or the god Bel. But we remember the creation. We just read in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 about the creation of mankind. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the ever, and over every, every, every living thing that moves on earth. So you can imagine the Hebrews at the plains of Moab 
they had been, they had assimilated into the Egyptian culture. They knew these creation stories. They knew the god Amun-Ra. They knew about Bel. They knew about the fact that Pharaoh was supposedly made in the image of God. So what do they hear then? In Egypt, they were nothing. Kunum made man on his potter wheel, but he made everything on his potter wheel. There was nothing special about mankind, nothing special about the Hebrews at all. And indeed, the god Ra, because of his eye, running away. And then in the struggle of Amun-Ra's two sons to bring the eye of Ra back, tears started forming. And so therefore, man and woman are created by accident. Pharaoh is the image of the gods and only him. But now, what is God saying? Each man and each woman is special. We're elevated as equals. All men, all women, all races, all cultures, all ages. We're elevated as equals and each has the stamp of royalty. We're able to participate with God in terms of our rule and reign over his creation. So with those Hebrews who left Egypt, God made a special statement about Israel. And he said to them, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And it carries all the way into the New Testament, where Paul is talking in Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. I, I find it very interesting that he's using the word slavery there. That would remind any Jew of the slavery that they had suffered in Egypt. No, they haven't received the spirit of slavery to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So what are our concluding thoughts? Once again, we put scripture into its historical context. Once again, we look upon Genesis and how God uses the idea of a polemic to help his people 3,400 years ago understand that he is God. And Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and the gods of Canaan and the gods of the Assyrians and later on the gods of the Greeks and the Romans are all false gods. God is coming against all of them, all pagan gods. It's not about Pharaoh as the only one made in the image of God. It's not about all the pagan kings who were the only ones that had any worth, any significance. No. God, right there in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, he's teaching them, and so he's teaching us. We, us, all, men and women, are created by God on purpose. He did this on purpose. 
And he did it differently than the rest of creation. He created everything by his word, but he formed us like a potter forms clay on a potter wheel. We were the only ones formed by God this way. We're made in his epoch. We're made in his image. We're made in his likeness. All people, all races, all equal in God's sight. So we end off this third video by asking our Lord, the high priest, King of kings and Lord of lords to come and lift his hands over us to play, pray his blessing. Just like he prayed a blessing over his 120 disciples the day he ascended to the Father. And it could very well be that Jesus lifted his hands and prayed the ironic blessing. It's the only blessing where anybody lifts their hands over anybody. Jesus, may you lift your hands over all of us. Myself and everybody else that's watching this video anywhere throughout the world. And may you bless us with those words. Those words that you probably blessed your disciples with back then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and may he give you his shalom. Let's say this as a prayer. Let's turn this into a prayer. And may indeed you recite this with me as we ask Jesus to bless us. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us and may he give us his shalom. And I wish you shalom and I'll see you in video number four. God bless. Thank you.